Thank you, Jeff. Very good to see you. Some I did not intentionally uh, go to prior to the service because I wanted to stand here and see you for the first time. And it's very good to see you. Uh, Very good to look out and see your faces. So glad you're here. If you would, would you take out a Bible uh, with me? If you did not bring one, I am uh, certain there's one under a seat or in a chair in front of you. And would you turn to the book of 1 John with me? 1 John chapter 3, I, in my email, as I sent my text to Jeff, as you're turning there, and to uh, the other elders, I, I gave him my text and I said, admittedly, I, I, uh, we are in the book of 1 John as a congregation at Florida. We, we stopped for the season of Advent, and uh, we'll pick back up uh, uh, later at the end of this month, but we're in 1 John, and, and I've preached this text at our con- to our congregation, at our church, in Durango, Colorado, a few months ago, but in the midst of preparation for that and in the preaching of that, uh, there was a, this constant flow of testimony uh, to the truth of, of what I think the Lord would have for us here that just reminded me of this place uh, and this people uh, that have loved us with a love that is supernatural and extraordinary. So let's get the text in front of us this morning. Uh, I'm being First John chapter three, and I'll read. For, I'll we'll be in verses eleven uh, to eighteen. First John chapter three, eleven to eighteen. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered. His brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we pray this morning that by your spirit and by your word, that we would be conformed all the more into the image of Christ and that you would cause us to grow in our love for one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1945, a man was executed by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was 39 years of age. He was a German pastor. And in his book, Life Together, he makes a statement about Christianity. And let me read that for you this morning. So listen in as I, as I quote from Life Together. Bonhoeffer writes this. In this statement, it, it directly confronts a very significant struggle within the church of Jesus Christ 
today. He writes this, every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dreams of a Christian community more than the community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their prayer for personal intention may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial, they enter the community of Christians with their demands, set up their own laws, and judge one another and even God accordingly. So if you, if you boil this statement down, what Bonhoeffer is saying here, that, that Bonhoeffer challenges us with as the church of Jesus Christ, you could say this, here's the question. Do you love your own idea of Christian community more than you love the actual Christian community that God has given you? Do you love your own idea of Christian community more than you love the actual Christian community that God has given you? The Apostle John declared in John, 1 John 3, verse 11, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is what John declares to us today. Not that we should love the idea of one, loving one another, but rather that we should love one another. So the question begs to be asked, how do we do that? What does that look like if we are to love one another? And, and how does that How do we love one another as we ought, as the Scriptures would demand? Well, I want us to consider this morning four exhortations from this text. From from the words of the Apostle John as we try to answer those questions. So here are the exhortations. And they're on the screen for us this morning. They're longer, so you can take some time to write those down. I'll read them. Number one, love one another unlike the world. Secondly, Love one another as an expression of your eternal life. Thirdly, we'll see to love one another because Christ loved us first, loved you first. And then lastly this morning, love one another in deed and in truth. So let's take these one at a time and first, love one another unlike the world. Verses 11 to 13 again. Bear with me as I read. Again, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And and why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So John here, he begins by trying to help us understand what does, what should our love look like? And he begins by telling us what it should not look like. And he starts by holding up Cain as exhibit A. This takes our mind. And John does this. If you've not been in the book of any of John's writing, uh, John is going to take you back to the creation account repeatedly. And here he does it as holding up Cain as exhibit A as sort of a foil against which the love of the church should shine. This is why he does this. And it should shine clearly 
and brightly. He says, don't be like Cain who murdered his own brother. We shouldn't be surprised if the world hates in that way. It, sh- it, should, it should do a lot of things, but it should not surprise us when the world hates in that way. But we should not be that way, John says. Don't be that way. Don't hate that way. Don't murder your brother. Now, when John speaks of the world here in verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. What does that mean? What does he mean by the world? And in a similar way, back in chapter 2, John writes, and he speaks there of the world simply in terms of the created order, as he writes about, and he uses this phrase, or everything that God has made. When John speaks of the world here in chapter 3, in this place, he speaks, he's referring to all of those who are enslaved to their own sin. He's not simply talking about, speaking about, writing about the created order. He's talking about the world in the sense about those who are enslaved to their own sin and enslaved to Satan in their rebellion against God. It's, It's demonic and human rebellion coming together that rejects and and attempts to overthrow God's rightful authority. This is what John's writing about here in verses 11 to 13. So within this present world, within the world that we live, the created order, in terms of all of creation, you have the church and you have the world. They're, They're opposed, should be, they are, according to the Bible, opposed to one another. And John is writing in those terms, which... John is painting as two very separate, two very distinct uh, groups. Those who have been born spiritually of God and therefore are in God's family. John writes this way. And having those have been rescued from the world. And, those, and then those who would continue with Satan in their rebellion against God. Born again of God's family. And then those who rebel against God and his family. And John says to the church in verse 12 here, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So we tend to be surprised when we see divisions like this, Cain and Abel, occurring within families. But even within the very first family, two brothers, a division had already begun between the people and the world. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, you can write down that verse. He says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Make no bones about it. And so are those who follow him and rebel against him from the beginning. It's not a brand new thing. But the church, as the family of God, those who are born of God, is distinct from that world. There's a difference. There's a distinction from the world and the church. We're not living in rebellion against him. That needs to be very clear. The church should not be, is not living in rebellion against God. But rather, the church is living to display God's beauty, his character, His love in our relationships with one another. This is how we should live. For us to hate one another would then be to identify ourselves, according to the Scriptures, with the world, with its values, 
and to follow the lead of Satan. That doesn't swallow well, I realize, but that's what John is saying here. John says we should love one another. Now, why did Cain murder his brother, Abel? John says in verse 12, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain actually hated his brother. Cain hated Abel because Abel was righteous. Abel wanted to please God. And this is really important for us to see here. Because on the one hand, when the church lives in love as we should, and the church lives in that way, and then in so doing displays the beauty of those loving relationships within our community, at times what God is going to do We've seen it at this church. I have been here and around here long enough to know what, what at times what God does is God is going to draw people to himself as they witness the reality of those relationships. The, the people, the, the world, they look in. They look in and they see on the church, namely this church, they should. They look in and they see the difference from the world, they say something is distinct. Something sets them apart from the world. And I don't necessarily know what it is, but I see it. And God uses that to draw people in and into himself and then to open their eyes through the preaching of God's word. Their eyes are then open and they see right the glory of Christ. They recognize then the power of Christ and the beauty of the gospel. You've known people to come through this place that that's happened to. They come in estranged, distant and set apart, and they're drawn in. And then through the preaching of the word, through the sharing of the gospel through an individual, God opens their eyes, sees the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the gospel that is on display within that community. And we should expect that to happen. You should expect that to happen. That God would actually do that. That he would use the love between brothers and sisters to draw people in. It shouldn't be some complacent thing that happens out there. It should be something that you expect. And that you should even pray for. God, would you draw people in? Would you allow them to see our love and our care and our concern for one another Would you draw people in by that, that they might hear the gospel and be saved? And that's that's one of the most powerful testimonies to the reality of the gospel in the world today. It really is. The church living together in love as we should. That God could bring people, coalesce people to do that. However... The world is not always going to respond that way, are they? Is it? I think you know that. I know that for certain. We, we see that all the time in, in Durango, Colorado. The, uh, the world does not always respond in that way. For some, the, the righteous love that is displayed, they see that. They see it between uh, friends and families and longtime friendships and care and concern for the aged and the widow and the orphan. And they, that dis, that's put on display in and throughout the church. And they see that. And for some, it's the aroma of death. Paul talks about that. It's not the aroma of life. Rather, it's the aroma 
of death. So there will be times when the world actually hates you. Not because you're failing to live as God calls you to live. But precisely because you're living as God calls you to live. The world looks in and says, I can't stand that. Those righteous, arrogant, religious types. You seek to help a child embrace a gender identity that actually matches up with the way that God created them. That's a loving thing to do. You you will be viewed in that moment with disdain and with hatred by the world. By some in the world. You seek, you work to protect the lives of unborn Right, the child in the womb, and which is, if for the record, is a loving thing to do. I think most, if not all, know that. It's a loving thing to do, and you will be viewed by some in the world with disdain and with hatred. Absolutely. You tell someone from a different religious tradition or a different faith from Christianity that they actually must abandon that false worship. You say that to that individual, that they must put their faith and trust in Christ alone for their salvation, or they will not be saved. Which is a loving thing to do, because it's true. And you will be viewed by some with disdain and with hatred. If you call people to turn away from the sin in their life. The sin which is destroying them. Which is a loving thing to do. And you will be viewed by some with disdain and with hatred. Jesus tells us, he, in John 15 it's recorded, listen in. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus tells us this. Jesus doesn't say that to you and to I to scare us. He says that to stabilize us. This is why he tells us that not to frighten you, but rather he says, I am trying to stabilize you. To help you not be shaken. This you should expect, dear child. Do not be shaken. I'm trying to, he's trying to guard our hearts from doubt. Right? When you're doing the right thing, you believe it's right because you've read it in here and your, your, your pastor tells you you're doing the right thing in the Lord. And the Lord is, you feel like doing these things in your church and the world hates you and there comes doubt. Is this really the right thing? Am I doing, was that the right decision? Did I go against the, was that the right thing to do? There's, and he tells us this in John 15 to guard even against assumption that if the world does despise you, does reject you, or even kills you, by the way, you must be doing something wrong. Now, we, you may be doing something wrong, for the record. You may be doing something wrong, but not necessarily We may be living exactly how the Lord calls us to live according to His Word in righteous love. 
and Abel's sacrifice that you can read about in Genesis, his, his sacrifice, and, and that at least in part is why Cain murdered him, because his sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. But John tells us here in John 3 that we must not be deterred from biblical, Christ-like, righteous love, even if or even when the world hates us in the church. Do not be deterred from righteous love according to his word. In the end, it is not their hatred of you. In the end, it is their hatred of Christ. And you cannot hear that enough. Their hatred of you is their hatred of Christ. And that leads them to hate the church because they hate Christ. But unlike the world, John says, unlike the world, love one another. Don't be like the world. Secondly, love, so love one another and like the world. Secondly, love one another as an expression of your eternal life. I think point one is pretty easy to get to. Secondly, love one another as an expression of your eternal life. Look at verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So this is one of the clearest signs, one of the clearest expressions, if you will, of the fact that we really have received eternal life. It's one of the clearest. It's that we love our fellow Christians. This is what John tells us here. It's that we love fellow members of the body of Christ. We love them. When John speaks of life or or eternal life, he's not simply speaking of life that continues forever, temporally. That's true. But that's not all that John speaks about. It does continue forever, both, both now and in the age of come. In the age to come, but he's also identifying here a quality of life. John is identifying something, and it's a quality of life. It's a type of life that we certainly are not going to experience fully until the age to come. It's not, we're not fully experiencing that yet, but as God's people, we begin to experience it right now in this present life. And John is pointing us to that. It's a it's a brand new spiritual. Life that comes from being born again. I mean, just think about those terms. Paul, you're dead in your sins and trespasses. Your heart is stone. It's hard. There's no life. You're not, the, 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 the Holy Spirit is not in you. You're not born again. You're dead. And so being born again with new spiritual life by the Spirit of God. And with that comes a transformation of heart, a brand new heart. A fleshly heart, a heart that pulses, spiritually speaking, for Christ. A life which includes genuine love for God. (laughs) You're born again and you love God. And a genuine love for people. This is what means being born again. It's part of what it means. And I think that's why John can speak here of this life, both as something that we enter into in verse 14... It's a state, it's a reality that we enter into for eternity. But it's also something that enters into us. And I think we can see that here. And it's largely 
how we experience it right now. It enters into us. Look at verse 15, the latter part. He says, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John shows us that here. He says, the murderer doesn't have eternal life abiding, dwelling, living. But God's people do. Eternal life is in you now. It's not just an eternity. There's a life to experience now. It's an eternal life that enters into us, that brings new spiritual life and spiritual transformation. And here then is the great irony from the Cain and Abel story. Though Cain killed his brother Abel, Cain was the one who was abiding in death. And Abel was the one who, and according to God's promise, is and will forever abide in God's eternal life. There's irony in that. One killed the other, but the one that died had eternal life, we believe, according to the Scriptures, abiding in him. But the one that killed his brother had death abiding in him. Spiritual death. And so it is today. Those who despise the church, who hate believers in Jesus Christ, they, they show that, that they show in so doing, so hating, that they've not entered into eternal life. They've not been born again. They abide in spiritual death. And you think, well, can that be true? It absolutely can be true. This truth, yes, but people saying, uh, we meet people pretty regularly where we live. I love God, but I cannot stand the church. Those people, I've, I've been wounded and broken and hurt. I hate Christians. Well, aren't, aren't you one? <laughs> And according to the scriptures, to use that kind of language. And if that's true, coming out of the heart of this person, then John says that spiritual death abides. They've not been born again. That's what John says. It's interesting just that just as one of the distinguishing marks of the world is not simply hatred in general, but particularly hatred for the church. That's a distinguishing mark. But you can flip that around, and I think we should flip that around. One of the distinguishing marks of the church is not simply love in general, but love for the church. Love for the church, for the bride of Christ. It's the only thing that Christ is returning for. His bride, the church. Love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for one another. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. And you can include sisters there. John says this is how we know that we've passed from one life to the other because we love the brothers. We love the sisters. So there is this unity. There is this joyful fellowship. There is a devotion, if you will, that is uniquely evidenced, uniquely evidenced in the lives of believers towards one another. It's unique. It's distinct from the world. Clearly, we need to say the scriptures call us to something that, that we would love. It doesn't mean that we, that we love the world Right, just openly and in generally. Clearly, the rest of the scriptures would teach us that. Don't love the world. 
We're called to, but, but we are called to love our enemies. And not, not in the way that we are conformed to it, as Paul would write. We're called to bless them. We're called to bless those that persecute us, the scriptures say. We're called to seek the lost. We're called to love the world. The scriptures are unapologetic in that regard. But there is a unique love that is displayed among the family of God. We don't love fellow brothers and fellow sisters the same way in which we love the world. Just as there's a unique love displayed among members of your own family. As tight-knit as some of your family is with another family, as close as those relationships are, there is a distinct or a unique love, rather, in your own household. And there should be, right? You don't love your spouse or your children with the same love that you love your neighbor's spouse or children. You, it should be distinct in your own home. So it's not a foreign concept to us to love the church in a way that's distinct from the way that we love the world. Listen to Galatians chapter 6. Paul writes this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, Paul writes, Galatians 6.10, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, he made a distinction there. You love the world and do good to them. Bless them when they persecute you. If you have two coats, give them one, but do especially good to those who are of the household of faith, Paul says. So although we should not be surprised if the world hates us, brothers and sisters, we should be surprised if we hate one another. It may be better to say it this way. We should be alarmed if we hate one another. We should be dismayed if we hate one another. It should unsettle us if we hate fellow brothers and fellow sisters in Christ. So much so that John says that we should be examining our hearts to see if we've actually entered into eternal life. I can't stand Christians, right? In that moment, if you're a Christian, you should, according to John, examine your heart. Have you entered into eternal life, spiritual life with Christ, or you still, does spiritual death abide in you? It's an examination of the heart. Now, like elsewhere in John's writing, when John warns us about sinning, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Anyone sin, have a practice of sinning. And if you cannot say, I do, you likely, there is a habit or a pattern in your life that we are regularly trying to die, right? Put to death in us the things that are of the world. We repent of sin. We turn away from sin. It's ongoing. So John writes in this way, he writes about sinning, whoever makes a practice of sin is of the devil. So all sin, John is warning against continuing in sin, against being characterized by sin, against refusing to turn away from sin. He's not saying if you've ever been angry with a fellow Christian, right? If you say, man, that guy, I just, I, I love him, but he frustrates me. <laughs> I wish he would stop this, stop doing this. I've confronted this sin. I've, I've, this brother, I love him, but he's got to do this differently. This sister, that's not what he's talking about here, right? Uh, we, we, we disagree or we get angry with fellow Christians. 
if, if that was the case, right, that we, every time we got angry, we were frustrated with fellow Christians, uh, that nobody was a Christian, well, there would be no church. <laughs> this is not what John's talking about here. But, but brother or sister, I need to ask this question. Are you harboring, is your, is your heart home to anger towards a fellow believer? Do you have unresolved anger in your heart? Are you letting it fester like a mesquite thorn, thistle in your skin? Are you letting it swell and irritate and turn red? Are you letting it continue and it lead to hatred? I, they just irritate me. That sounds a little more like bitterness to me. <laughs> Is it festering? Is it unresolved? Is it leading to hatred because are you allowing it to take root are you giving yourself over to it is it something more than a simple disagreement that's now been reconciled and resolved are you refusing to turn from it to turn away from it to be reconciled to seek reconciliation have you actually been desiring your brothers and sisters harms have you ever thought about that you say, well, I would never wish that they would get hurt. But were you really upset that they got the promotion or the pay raise or what they did flourished and what you did didn't? That's harm. Is that deep in your heart? Are you heading in that direction, harboring those things? Because the scriptures warn us in such a state about the possibility that we may very well be abiding in death. It's such a wonderful opportunity to let the scriptures be held up and then we examine our own heart. And John here, he is following Jesus. He's only following Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. By affirming here that the heart behind hatred is the same heart behind murder. He's only affirming what Jesus had already taught He's not saying here in verse 15 that everyone who hates his brother actually murders him. But like Jesus, he's painting with this broad brushstroke. And he's, he says, essentially, there are really only two ways to live here. This is what John is saying. The way of hatred and murder. This is one way. And then there's the way of love. And the way of the Christian is the way of love. One or the other. The same heart, John is telling us, stands behind anger and hatred and murder and for those who continue in those ways he says they won't enter eternal life you've not it's evidence that you've not been born again you're not you're not reborn and on the other hand if we pursue genuine love for our fellow believers and affectionate commitment one for another a genuine concern for their welfare for their well-being you see those things evidence a genuine desire to see them flourishing in the Lord, repenting of sin and turning away from rebellion and following Christ, rejoicing with those who rejoice, right? Weeping with those who weep, as Paul writes, being moved to give yourself for their good, seeking their peace and, their, and reconciliate, pardon me, reconciliation when needed. John says when that is happening, you can actually see that as a confirmation that you've entered into eternal life. This is actually a confirmation that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, don't, don't do something here. Don't, there's there's a, a risk that we run. Don't turn that on its head 
We don't love in order to enter into eternal life. That's not what I'm saying for the record. We know that we have passed out of death. That's an action that's, that has been completed. We know that we passed out of death because today we find ourselves loving, having genuine love for brothers and sisters. And you say, where does that come from? How do I meet someone from a different country or a different state? And when they tell me that they are a Christian, how is their love? Well, it, I, I'm, because the Spirit of God is there. That's what John is telling you. There's a kinship. It's called the, respond, or the answer to Jesus' high priestly prayer. Make them one, Father, as you and I are one. So love one another as an expression of your eternal life in Christ. Thirdly, number three, love one another because Christ loved you first. Look at verse 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So here we see this is how we pass from death and into life. If, if this is not your reality, this is what you need to pass from death to life. And I know those are, when I say those in someone else's pulpit, I know that people likely cringe. Whoa, what is he about to tell them? But it's because Christ loved us. Now we'll listen to 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Christ suffered God's wrath in our place. He freed us, his, those that are his, from the penalty of death and the power of sin and the reign of Satan. I'm born again by the blood of Christ. And he did that through his death, through his resurrection, freeing me from the power of sin, the, the reign of Satan in my life, so that I could live through him and that we could love through him. And as a result... The love that we are then called to have for one another, it finds its source and its shape in the love of Christ. Where does a Christian's, where is the source of our love? When someone says, how do you love that way? How do you take care of your aging parent that way? They've lost their mind. They've lost their faculties. How do you do that? You need to say, the source and the shape of my love is found in Christ. That's the biblical answer. Our love finds its source and its shape in the love of Christ. We're enabled to love one another, Scripture say, because we have first come to know the love of Christ. When I know the love of Christ, I know that He put Himself in my place on His own free volition. And it pleased the Father, Isaiah says, to crush him, to crush the Son, to shed his blood on the cross. He did that in my place. And if you are his, he did that in your place to free us from sin, to free us from Satan. And when he did that, when we saw clearly the glory of Christ, we knew the love of God in that moment. I've been loved by Christ he did that for me. I don't deserve it. You're right, you don't deserve it. You deserve death and hell and damnation forever. 
but he put himself in your place. It's called grace. And in that moment, you know, the, you come to know that first he has loved me. And you can't get that order wrong. You did not love him first. You despised him. You hated him. You rejected him. You rebelled against him according to the Bible. And so when you know him, if you know him, it's because he first came after you. He pursued you. He drew you in through any manner of things. Then under the preaching of the gospel, he opened your eyes to see Christ. And you said, I know love. I know Christ. Do not get that order wrong. And it's not just sort of, we don't know it intellectually, or, but, but rather personally, experientially. Any number of you in this room, my guess is if you've been here one Sunday, you could say this intellectually. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus loves me intellectually. But I, I'm trying to communicate this morning personally, experientially. I deserved to be on the cross, dead, wrath poured out on me, condemnation forever. And experientially, I was delivered from that by the grace of God through Christ. We've experienced this saving, transforming love through the death on the cross for sin. And without that, we continue to take our place with Cain. If that is not your reality, you have taken your place alongside of Cain this morning. Rebellion against God. Rebellion against the Creator and the Savior and the Sustainer of all things. That is everyone continuing in hatred and abiding in death. That is everyone before experiencing the love of God, the saving love of God in Christ. Everyone. The gospel levels the playing field there. And if you're not trusting in Christ... For your salvation. It doesn't matter how long you've been at this church. How long your your family has known someone who knew someone. If if you've not experienced the transforming grace of God. You're not trusting in Christ for your salvation. For the forgiveness of your sin. This is the situation that you're in. You're right alongside Cain. But Christ is came. That's the good news. The greatest three letters in all of the Bible, B-U-T, Ephesians, but God was rich in mercy and full of grace. And he loved you with a great love. And what love is that? Jesus. That's what John's talking about here. Christ did come so that you might be rescued, so that you can be rescued. You can be delivered from the domain of darkness and enter in this dominion of light. Be freed from the reality of Cain and be reconciled to God and be reconciled one to another with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. That is possible. This morning, Christ is not just the source His love for us defines the shape of our love. He sets the example as well. He certainly is undeniably the source, but he shows us also what true love actually looks like. He not only is the source by dying in our place, but he gives us the shape. And and honestly, this is where, I've said this so many times uh, in Colorado, this is where the dreamy visions of community begin to get blown away. 
Uh, we have a lot of people come to the church looking for community. We just need community. <laughs> That's how it goes. And this right here is where those dreamy kind of uh, fictitious uh, visions of that get blown away. They start to get blown away. The love that we should have one another as fellow members of the body of Christ, it's a self-sacrificing love. Doesn't sound real dreamy. <laughs> he, being Jesus Christ, he lays down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life, the Bible says, for whom? Others. He gives us the shape of it. Now, that does not mean that we atone for their sin. That does not mean that you need to go to the cross and be the savior of your wayward child or your wayward grandchild or your mother or your father that do not believe like you do. That's not what he's saying here. We don't atone for anyone's sin. Christ alone did that. That's what that means. But our love takes the same shape as his love, the same character as we give ourselves sacrificially, give ourselves, give of our lives for the sake of our brother's and sisters. Now, for a moment, I need you to do something with me. I need you to dismiss in your mind, dispel in your mind, this dreamy vision of jumping on a grenade or stepping in front of a bus for your friend. Now, that, those are certainly amazing acts of love. The reality, however, is that will not be the case for most everyone in this room, likely. It will and it does happen unbelievable act of selfless love but for most of us that's not what it looks like is it we don't have those opportunities we we tend to almost romanticize this single dramatic momentary self-sacrificing act of love if i could just step in front of a bus if i could just have if i would have been there to just catch them as they were falling if i could have jumped on the grenade it sounds like this right it's a it's a it's a comic book and the people that do that, it's an unbelievable sacrifice. But that, that's, not what, that's not what it looks like for most of us. For most of us, it will look much more rather mundane. <laughs> uh, much more day by day by day by day by day by day. And yet Christ's love for us still shapes our love for others. It, it, it can still give shape to what that love looks like as we give ourselves sacrificially. Again, our time, our energy, our resources, our relationships, our affection, our compassion. We will enter into relationship, and this may just be as important, we will stay in relationship, not simply for the immediate gain that there is. Have you ever had that cross your mind? I can be their friend because of what I get. Now, we don't ever let that cross right here. But have you ever thought that? This is what I gain. But we enter into, rather, Christians, the shape of our love given to us by Christ. We enter into relationship and stay in relationship, not for the immediate gain that we get, but that we might contribute to them, that we might offer something in that relationship, that we might end up over the long haul, that this relationship might even cost me giving of myself to them. The shape of a Christian relationship and friendship, we, we humbly prefer others. Humbly preferring others. We 
put our own in, we put their interests rather above our own. One of the most remarkable and humbling moments for us as a church revitalization in Durango was this moment very early on when uh, Miss Fran Packer, she's today 91 years old, a wonderful woman that loves Jesus, and she said very early on two things to me. She said, I, 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 don't, I don't know all of the songs that we're singing. You know, we used to sing certain songs, and I said, but Miss Fran, those songs, they had no Bible in them. And she said, I know. And she said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to learn these songs. She was humbly preferring others. She didn't come to me and say, Pastor, you better change the songs. She said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn these songs. Can I get some music to learn them? And she said, you know, at that time she was 88 or so, 89. She said, my mind is not what it used to be when I was 20. <laughs> Mine's not what it used to be uh, at 20, and I'm only 46. But I, I said, Miss Fran, okay. She said, you're always talking about us hiding the word, memorizing the word. It, it's, it's how we put sin to death in our life. We wield the sword. That's the word. And I just can't memorize, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to memorize. If it takes me a year to memorize one verse, that's what I'm going to do. Because that's what our congregation's doing, and that's what Christians do. She's humbly preferring others more than herself. It cost her something. We put interest of others above our own. And that is Christ-like, sacrificial love, the laying down of our life for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what that is. This is what John goes on in the rest of these verses to expand on. So less, lastly here, our final exhortation from the text Verses 17 to 18, love one another in deed and in truth. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, John says here, true love is shown not only in the supreme self-sacrifice of actually giving one's life. That is a way. That is a form, but also in all other forms of genuine, compassionate, self-giving of ourselves and our resources. That's what John tells us here, which then, in so doing, meet the real needs of people around you. I said this in the chapel, and I, I really don't want to say everything in, a, in here again because I, I want those that were in there to feel really special. Uh, but... It's what this church has done for my family for four years. Literally giving of resources that you put in those little whisker baskets and the church has been generously faithful for, uh, to us for four years. They've given of their own personal vacations to come and stay with us in our little camping trailer. They've, they've made it uh, a priority to, to, to send a card, to come and visit, to, to send a text, to send a, a package of you know, toilet paper with things scrawled all over it, right? I think some of those in this room are now adults that wrote on that four years ago, and they've got jobs, and things have changed for them. But those are ways that we just see and are reminders of this meeting real needs, right, in, in what John is saying here. And this is what the love of God looks like and what should characterize our love in the church. Real and practical meeting needs. Now, one example that John gives here, meeting someone's physical need, their, their, their material need, John doesn't ask us to give what we don't have. That's really important here. John does not ask to give what you do not have, but he says, if we have the world's goods, that's what he says. 
He doesn't say, if you don't have anything, you need to kind of sacrifice and send your family into greater distress. No, he says, if you have the world's good, we have the means and we are confronted with the situation of a fellow believer who has genuine need. John says, don't harden your heart. You have the means, you, ha- you see the need, it's genuine, vet the need. It's genuine, rather Don't close your fist, but rather open and have compassion on them and be generous to help seek, meet their need. Now, again, the assumption here is that it's legitimate. There are always illegitimate needs. We have experienced many of those, I think, in this room. There could be a variety of factors involved in someone lacking material necessity. The Apostle Paul says, if someone's not willing to work, they should not eat, right? That's not a legitimate need. You won't work. Why? Is there real reason and real cause? If there is, okay. But if it's because you're lazy, Paul says you shouldn't eat. It's an illegitimate need. But, so there's a bit broader picture here than what John is addressing. But here, I think what we can say clearly about John is there's a clear and a very real need. The need is genuine. And the love of Christ should compel us then to meet that need if we have the ability to do so. Now, of course, John's final exhortation in in verse 18 here, it can be applied more broadly than simply financial aid or or material uh, need or aid, I certainly believe. The The point here is that our love for one another in the church, it should be active. It's not passive. It should be active. It should be specific. Say, I just love my brothers. A good question, if you think that or hear that, you should say, how? How am I loving them? How specifically, how concretely, how, how much burden-bearing is my love for them? Am I bearing their burden in this? How, how much am I seeking to bless and to provide for others at the cost to myself? This is what John's referring to here. And it shouldn't be hollow talk. This is where the dreamy visions get blown away because this is hard, isn't it? To put someone else's desire and need above yourself? I'm a really selfish person at times, and that's really hard. I like things the way I like things. My my family didn't say amen, but I'll say it for them. That's hard. So to put someone else's need, someone else's preference, that's not hollow talk, right? It shouldn't be, and it's not idealized images, rather, or dreamy visions. One of the buzzwords... I think you've probably heard over the last probably decade, maybe, I don't know, uh, or so, is community. And we hear people say that. I, I began with that phrase in the opening with Bonhoeffer's book. I want community. I want Christian community. And that is certainly good. If that's why you came to this church, that is certainly good. You need to find someone here and say, where's the next community group? I need to be there. I need help. I'm struggling as a parent. I'm struggling as a single adult. I'm struggling as a college student. I need community of people. Well, it's going to happen in part in here, but also in those community groups. The I, but the idea, so those things are good, but the idea of community, it sounds really appealing when it's general and theoretical. It sounds appealing. It gets more difficult Difficult, however, when we enter into these day-in and day-out relationships with real-life people. You're like, that person has been struggling with that for far too long. Please stop struggling with that. So as you, as you ponder this this morning, as you ponder that last point, 
here's, here's how I want to close. I want to close not with more of what I believe. I, I wanna, I'm going to close in a different way. I want to leave you with a hypothetical, made-up example that I want you to consider regarding this last point this morning. And any resemblance, I said this when I preached this last time, I sincerely mean this, any resemblance to actual peace people, actual places or actual events is purely providential, okay? Um, let's say you sign up for attending Rocky Point Baptist Church. You, you met someone at Holly Jolly. I think you probably made popcorn again, I don't know. Uh, you got a bag of popcorn, you're like, you went home and you're like, babe, these people were great. My kids, our kids go to school with their kids. Did you, they were kind. Did you, you know? And so you sign up. Uh, maybe you even say, you know what? We're all in. We need community. We're really struggling. So I'm going to go to a community group. We, we need to be a part of a, a community group. I heard there's one meeting at the McCullough's and, you know, we live right out there off of 914. It's the closest one to us. I think we need to go. And you have high hopes for Christian community. You, you, you're talking with your wife, you're talking with your children, or maybe you're just thinking it to yourself, and you say, I have high hopes for this Christian community. And after some initial meetings, you realize that this group, they're not really as impressive as you thought they would be. You go home and you're like, man, <laughs> they're just like us. <laughs> And the better and the more you get to know them, the more ordinary they feel, really. The more you get to know them, they feel very ordinary. And in, in fact, are kind of annoying, right? You, you start to identify their peculiarities. Like, do you notice every time he does this, he does that? You haven't found any common interest. You know, you, you, Heath can't stop talking about hunting, right? And... Uh, you know, you're like, I, I sit behind a computer all day. I don't even own a gun. We have no common interest. Uh, and you, you come to realize that there are some differences even politically. Some differences even according to your parenting style. Can you believe that they don't let their kids eat high fructose corn syrup? I mean, uh, didn't hurt me. Didn't hurt my kids. The meeting place even is a bit further than you were expecting. And it's nice to share a few snacks. I mean, uh, the McCullers are great hostesses. They shared some great snacks. Sarah brought her wonderful side dish, and, and we enjoyed all that. But, but, you know, no one there really eats like I do. I'm a clean eater. Um, and when you get home, you're still hungry. They're like, this is what enough for me. I need, I need more to eat. And, and the leader uh, doesn't really stay on time. They start late. They end late. We need to get home. It's, I've got to get to work in the morning, right? Like, I'm, I'm frustrated by all this. And the study, well, it's just okay. He can't stay on time. We get off track. They want to talk about, you know, all these other things. And I just want to stay right there on the study, line by line, whatever it is we're doing, and it's just okay. And you, you wish they would focus more on the application of the word. You're like, I came here looking for something to solve my problem. I need you to apply the gospel to my life, and you just guys want to talk about you know, the struggles you're having with your teenagers. I don't have teenagers. They're all babies. Or maybe it's vice versa. Or maybe you kids get there and they got stepped on because 
all the kids were on the trampoline at the McCullough's. And they were trying to do dude perfect on the basketball goal and yours was under the basketball goal and they came in and you're going on the way home and you're like, see, I told you we should never go back. They just, they just got landed on and trampled on. They have no consideration for my kids. And you find that many of the same struggles from the same people resurface over and over and over and over and over again. And you find that, you know, people are really busy. Because in your idealized idea of community, you thought by going to that, somehow your life would, their life is slower and your life would slow down with it. But what you find out is everyone there's life is full. Doesn't matter what season of life they're in, things are happening. Life is full. You haven't really been able to connect at the level in which you wanted. Remember, no common interest. You don't eat the same. Uh, and, and during the week, you try to connect. And you're like, man, they just never text me back. No one even followed up. It's been, it's been 36 hours. No elder, no pastor, no deacon, nobody, no community group leader. No one has followed up with me. And worst of all, you had a really hard week. You really did. A really difficult week. And you know what? No one even seemed to notice. No one called you. And it dawns on you you know what, oftentimes these people really aren't that lovely. I mean, they're just not. They're not lovely. In fact, they seem pretty needy. I'm, I'm supposed to be the only needy one coming to the community group. They're supposed to be all together, reach out to me, have it all together, not have any needs. But the same guy is talking about his same problems every single week. And you know what I would say to you? It's all hypothetical because uh, you either decide, you know what? Christian community was not really all that it was cracked up to be. It's not. I've read all the books. I've heard people talk. And I'm just going to give up entirely. Maybe I'm going to try to find it in another place. I'll join the fishing club or something, right? I'm going to find community there. Or, or, now you have that choice Or you lean into the truth and the reality that Christ loved you when you were unlovely. When you were annoying. When you had the same problem week after week after week after week after week. And before you ate clean and before all those other things. He did this at great cost to himself. And now he calls you to love the brothers and sisters that he has given you. Not from a distance, but up close and personal. And let's say you choose the latter, right? Let's say for grins, everyone in here says, man, I was on the fence. You know, I've been to two community groups or whatever. I'm not going. I've been to Rocky Point three times and this guy comes in. I was on the fence, but I'm going to choose the latter. Today, I'm going to choose the latter. And you decide that you're going to make a concerted effort. You you know you're going to need the help of Christ. You know you're going to need the Holy Spirit in you. You're going to be dependent on His grace to do this. Because remember, the guy in the community group is annoying and there's no common interest and they don't text you when you leave. So, And you decide, I'm giving myself sacrificially in love to these unlovely people. I'm lovely and they're unlovely, and I'm going to give myself sacrificially in love to these unlovely people. More than that, you actually decide. You actually make a decision. 
I'm going to think. I'm, I'm going to show up and I am going to share a personal application. I'm going to do the study. I'm going to sacrifice my time to do the study, whatever it is. And when I show up, I'm going to contribute. And I'm going to say to these people something I've learned from my own life to try to encourage those unlovely people who don't want to focus on application uh, that I'm gathering with. I'm going to offer something to them sacrificially to me. And you pray week after week after week for those same concerns, right? The person shares the same thing I'm just struggling with. And internally you're saying, just repent and turn from sin. Put to death in you the things that are of the world. And week after week it comes. And so internally, every week you pray and you pray and you pray. And you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to regard their need more than myself. And I'm going to pray for this guy that he would be able to repent, that he would no longer be enslaved to the, and bondage to that sin, that he can walk away from whatever it is. I'm going to pray for them over and over. And during the week, you take some time even. You think of a passage of Scripture, right? You're reading your Bible because you're a lovely person that has it all together. And you're reading your Bible and you're reading through the Psalms one morning and, and the Lord opens your eyes to something that's encouraging, and you think of one of those unlovely people at that community group, one of those people you can't connect with that you think has nothing in common with you. You think, you know what, Lord? Okay, I think you put them on my mind, on my heart. I'm going to send them these, these verses. I'm going to text it to them. We can do that. Everybody knows what a text is, right? I can text that to them. You don't even have to have social media. It's, it's okay. You can send them a text. And you send that to them. You give up a Friday night even because you're gonna you're gonna babysit for a couple you're like man i got i my friday nights are free but i'm gonna give up that friday night because that couple they need to go on a date they need something right now so i'm gonna sacrificially give and i'm maybe you invite a single person over for dinner you say man i we got there's a whole tribe here and it might scare them off but but have you ever have you ever You've met that person and you invite them into your home to see your chaos, the ordered chaos, to sit at your table with your family, to give thanks to the Lord, family worship, whatever that looks like for you. And you do that on a Tuesday night to share a meal. You show up to some out-of-the-norm things that uh, are planned by your group and nothing out of the ordinary happens for you right you show up to youth group I, and you're like get home the parents are like they always want to know what Dalen say how was it good nothing out of the ordinary you know no angels from the sky nobody got healed no whatever but you give yourself week by week by week Week by week by week. To faithful Bible teaching. To sacrificial community. To caring for one another. And two or three or four years go by and you look up. And you realize something. That God has been changing you. Not necessarily them. Maybe. But God has been changing you. He's making you 
more like Christ as you lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. And at the same time, through your self-giving, sacrificial giving, he's providing comfort and encouragement to those around you. Right? And you look, you say, man, they are so faithful. But what you don't know is that faithful person's going, they're so annoying. But you just, you're offering encouragement and comfort and, and all of these things. And they, in turn, because of your faithfulness, are becoming more like Christ. They see Christ in your life. And though you, you shouldn't be, though you shouldn't be, you look around one day and you have this profound sense of surprise. Profound sense of surprise that you actually love those people. And that you, according to the scriptures, it's genuine love. And in that moment, you have this sense, I have passed out of death and into life by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we... We pray again now, as we began, that you would be at work in us by your spirit and your word. That as we leave this place today, that we wouldn't forget your word, (laughs) this word specifically. But that it would work itself out in our lives in specific relationships, specific opportunities that you, O Lord, have set before us. That we might love our brothers and sisters in Christ to the glory of your name as an expression of the eternal life that we have received in Jesus. We pray in Christ's name.